Welcome to You Can Do That with Lisa and Lee. It's the show where we find the most interesting people we know and ask them, you can do that? I'm your co-host, Lisa. And I'm your other co-host, Lee. This week, we're talking to Jill Pantosi about being a radio DJ, entertainment journalist, and navigating Comic-Cons while internet famous. But before we get started, I wanted to ask you, what have you been up to this week? Ah, this week. What have you done this week? Ooh, getting ready for Thanksgiving, mm-hmm, mostly. Mm-hmm. That's mostly it, and Christmas. Yeah, that's it's why this been... isn't going to be quite out. I didn't think on our usual Tuesday, but that's okay. Yeah, None of you, yeah. no one cares yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, I we go to my sister's family for Thanksgiving, and it's me and her and her sister-in-law, and we do all the light cooking, so. Oh, fun. Um, yeah, I like it. I like cooking, and I like Thanksgiving, so I'm pretty excited. Yeah, I like cooking and Thanksgiving, too. I used to always host. Well, you came over to my house one year, actually. I did, <laughs> yeah. What, your Thanksgiving was one of my favorites. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. I, You know, my best <laughs> friend moved to the same city I'm in, and so she has a much, just a better house than me for hosting, so mm. she usually hosts, but I do I used to do all the cooking because I was very protective over it. And this year, yeah. I'm trying really hard to let go a little bit and <laughs> accept some help. <laughs> I, I used understand. to just be way more like I wanted everything to be like I had a menu set out. But I think I'm I'm ready. So she's got a couple dishes this year. We're going to do a lot of it together. I think it should be a lot of fun. My brother's coming. Oh, um, yeah. My parents are coming down. Her parents are, her dad's coming with his wife. Um, that will be fun. But we did have the issue of like, we have so many desserts so many desserts <laughs> because like my way of handling people asking me if they could bring something was that I've never I've never done dessert at all I've hosted Thanksgiving a gazillion times and what I figured out early on is that that was the step too far for me I loved cooking I could do all the cooking but having to prep with enough thought to get desserts prepared too was mm-hmm. just like too much for me so it made yeah. it really easy because everyone always like it's almost insists on wanting to bring something yeah. And so I would always just be like, please bring a dessert. And then we'd have desserts and I wouldn't have to make them. Um, not that I don't like baking. It's just, it was one more stressful thing. But yeah, this year it's just, it got a little out of hand because we tried to tell people no and, and they did not <laughs> take <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, we, oh gosh, yeah, ours is weird because my sister's mother-in-law, like, she just cannot let go of the idea that it's too much work. For everyone to cook because she doesn't cook. Mm. And so, and she also is just like the most intimidating part to her is the meat. So she's just every single year, she's like, we'll just buy it. We'll just get some, we'll buy it from a local place and we'll just have, we'll just, we'll just buy a turkey from somewhere. And every year I'm just like, no, please, no. <laughs> but I, I don't really get a vote in that one. So I've had to let go of my, high control needs around Thanksgiving a yeah. long time ago. <laughs> yeah. So I just make sure that the sides I like are there. And then my sister's sister-in-law refuses to tell us anything that she's bringing. So it's just kind of mm. like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I went out and braved the store today and it actually wasn't too bad. I went to like Aldi oh, and the regular grocery store and it was not mobbed. I was thrilled. <laughs> Well, I hope that's the same for me because I have found myself without olive oil or yeah. any oil. <laughs> I have to go. Well, I had to go. We had gotten a lot of stuff already and I had to go. And I was just going you know, to pick up a few things and $200 later, you know, 
Yeah. Yes. But part of it is that I hadn't gotten it. I wanted to go to Aldi because I, so I, my family's Italian. So we've always done antipasta during the day as like, you got to pick on that, you know, mm-hmm. until, until it's time to eat. That's just like, to me, it's like a really important part of Thanksgiving, but I've, yeah. I've taken, Aldi actually has like pretty good, I mean, like salami and Italian meats and really good cheeses and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Aldi, Aldi and Little, Little, Lido. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they both do. You know, it's not the fanciest, but it's pretty good. And it's so cheap comparatively. So mm-hmm. I had been waiting to go do that and I had to do that. And then there were just a couple of things I realized I had forgotten and... I already just realized what I forgot. I still forgot something. Oh. <laughs> As I said that, I yeah. still forgot something. So we're at the point oh, now where bummer. I think it's the, um, baby, can you please go to the store for me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I um, I like your style better where y'all just like kind of graze during the day and then eat at dinner. And uh-huh. we do ours at lunch. Yeah. At like a one o'clock kind of lunch. And it's just like, it's so hard to get everything ready and... Like, that's why y'all think cooking the meat is intimidating because you have to get it done by one o'clock. Yeah. That is hard. <laughs> I I have usually had a pretty strong stance on like five at five p.m. at the earliest most mm-hmm. days. Yeah, that kind of started by well, my family usually ate later in the afternoon anyway, and I think the five p five or six p.m. thing started out of necessity. I used to have well, I still have a friend, but at the time she, uh, she worked at a, a liquor store. And so that's a big day for them. So mm-hmm. she didn't get off work until like five o'clock. So yeah. we we intentionally waited to serve until like five or six so that she could come off when she got off work. Yeah. And and then I just realized that year when I did that, I think that was the first year I hosted too. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. No, it was not the first year, but it was close. I was like, this is amazing because I don't have to get up that early. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. If you serve, oh, I've always thought that about people who serve at like one. I'm like, you must have to get up so early to get everything done. I know, like you do. Oh my gosh. And then this year, my nephew, he's in varsity football mm-hmm. and they're going to state for his division. Well, that's exciting. So it is exciting, but it also means that he's practicing on Thanksgiving. Oh my in gosh. In the morning. Yeah. So my sister has to get him and he, they go to school like 30 minutes away from their house. So she has to get him to school oh gosh. at 730 in the morning on Thanksgiving and practices until 930. And my husband and I are going to go pick him up and take him back with us because his school is like halfway between our house and her house. So it's kind of like on the one hand, it's convenient. But on the other hand, 930 feels really late for me yeah. <laughs> to yeah. just be hanging out at my house waiting. Yeah. I have so much to do. We are going to eat a little earlier this year. And I'm like already like I've got to make my list and my, you know, my backwards clock on a piece of paper that tells me what has to uh-huh. go in the oven when because I'm yep. going to get messed up if I don't. Because I. Uh, yeah. Thank you. ADHD. Need a list yep. of of every single minute of my day tomorrow. Everybody <laughs> always used to laugh at it. But like, I'm like, whatever. I have like a paper. It's like it's shaped like a grid. It's broken into half hour blocks. It tells me what time and what temperature everything has to go in it. And that way I make sure there's not an oven backup. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I started doing that. You know, I started doing that now that I think about it before I was diagnosed with ADHD and didn't realize I had it. And yeah. wow, that makes a lot of sense now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I know I've, I think I mentioned at some point before, maybe it hasn't come up yet, that like when I first went back to school, I really underestimated how hard it would be to get my meds when I moved from Colorado to South Carolina. <sighs> and so I went back to school and spent my first semester largely unmedicated. I saved the the few Adderall I had left for, you know, like yeah. for like 
exam exam week yeah. and like major <laughs> things. And I and I actually used one of my very precious Adderall on Thanksgiving Day that year just because I knew I would need it with everybody <laughs> in the house and talking and trying yeah. to stay focused on cooking. I was like, this is going to make me have so much better of a day if I like I won't be so stressed because otherwise I'm going to be yeah. constantly in my head trying to drown everybody out just to not screw everything up, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I agreed to do three o'clock this year because my parents are coming oh. down and they're not spending the night. And I just was oh, like, okay, we'll start yeah. at three so that it's not so late when y'all leave because I don't want them to have yeah. to be driving back at 11 o'clock at night, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like a four hour drive for them? No, like three, two and a half to three. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I guess they're far enough out that there is closer. Oh, to right. Because you're not in Charleston. You're, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I keep thinking yeah. Charleston. So it's, uh, you know, I, I, that's going to be a little bit of a, I was like, I, gotta, I really got to think this through. I'm getting better at it now mm-hmm. and I don't have to think it through as hard. But now that we're eating two hours earlier, I got to make sure that I don't uh, screw that up. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure it'll be great because your Thanksgiving is always great. And I know that mine will be good. And I hope all the listeners, even if you're listening to this in July, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving and you'll have another one in the future. Yeah. <laughs> So on that note, we've talked about Thanksgiving for about 10 minutes. I guess we should go move on to our interview with the incredible Jill. Yeah, this one was good. She was a radio DJ and mm-hmm. and like journalism and Jill's just done so many things. And I, you know, I'm always like, I'm always ready to see what what she's up to next because she's incredible. So yeah. well, let's find out. So today we're welcoming to our show Jill Pantosi, who's a digital media editor, writer, host, and strategist with almost 16 years of experience. The creator of the nerdybird.com, her work has appeared in Variety, The Hollywood Reporter, MTV News, IGN, and more. Jill has led the newsrooms of io9 at Gizmodo and the Mary Sue and is passionate about creating inclusive communities. And the thing I love about Jill is she's done so many amazing things that at the end of this she just sort of tacked on. I'm not sure if you want me to talk about my radio DJ work, but I could do that too, because she was also a DJ on the radio for almost like seven years, six years. Is that about right? <laughs> yeah, almost six. <laughs> so yeah, before all of that, we're, we're also an on-air DJ. That's kind of incredible. So welcome to the show, Jill. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I am excited that you uh, worked at io9. I loved that website. That oh, thank you so much. Yeah. One of my favorites. I actually just found out recently a neighbor who I'm friends with now, it came out that she was like, did you know 
Uh, and this is at dinner with a bunch of other friends. Did you know that I was actually a fan of yours before we met? And I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, so you're stalking me is what you're saying. And she was like, maybe, maybe. <laughs> Just a little. As somebody who has attended more than one convention with you, I would say you're, you are quite uh, famous within a group, within a certain group of people, for sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's funny. Like, I've I've said this a lot to people. It's like... They'll be like, oh, you're, you're famous? I'm like, well, I'm not like famous, famous. But if you take me somewhere very specific, there'll be a lot of cheering. <laughs> <laughs> well, That's I mean, that great. could be an interesting place to start. What's it like uh, being internet famous? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, you know, it was a slow, slow process, right? And I feel like between my blog and then like meeting people that way and then Twitter was the place where everyone met back in 2008 and around that that time. And, you know, I'm I'm not like a, a a lot of folks meet me and and they say, "Oh, well, you're you're so normal and you're exactly like you are online." And I I was like, "Yeah, what did you expect, you know?" And I guess it's <laughs> just that a lot of real celebrities act a certain way and um, you know, I just I'm a normal person, so I treat other people like normal persons. <laughs> um, but I think the one time it really hit me was I want to say it was 2010 or 2011 San Diego Comic Con. I was on a panel in the second biggest auditorium I think they have at the convention center. So it was like 2000 something people and they were going down the line introducing everyone. And, you know, there was like a couple real celebrities on there. So they got good cheers and then they got to me and I was like the second highest cheer of the entire panel and I was like oh my god <laughs> wow um so that was really cool yeah this is an aside but I recently went to Dragon Con and we had a couple of panels and they were tiny I mean like I think maybe there were 50 people at our second one but I've never done any public speaking at all and I was so nervous the whole time but like I don't know. Then I got up there and people are clapping for you and they look happy that you're there and you're just like, oh, well, this is fine. I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. It no, it's great. It's cool. And uh, the funny, you mentioned Dragon Con because I've gone there just once and it was a really interesting experience because um, everyone was all over the place, right? It's spread out a lot. Mm. But at one point, not to name drop, but I'm friends with Felicia Day. <laughs> and I ran into her and like a bunch of her folks there and and she was she saw I was kind of like very overwhelmed by the entire you know convention and she was like do you want to just like walk around with us for a while I'm like yeah yeah okay and that was great because then nobody recognized me because everybody was looking at her <laughs> yeah they do that is yeah that I believe that that seems about right <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay well actually Maybe talk a little bit about being an honorary DJ, actually, because I, I think that's really interesting. And I we've been friends for a really long time, and I've not ever actually heard – I knew that that was true, but I don't think <laughs> I've ever actually heard you talk much about it. So, like, how did that start? What was that like? Yeah, so I went to school for, like, street journalism. I was intending to be a news anchor one day. And I w appeared on the Jerry Lewis Labor Day Telethon, the New York version of the show, every year for like 20 some years and all the people there behind the scenes and, and all the news anchors there, they knew that's what I wanted to do. So 
when I graduated college, I was on, you know, that year and they said, oh, you know, we're so happy and you went to school for this. And hey, if anyone out there, you know, has a job for Jill in TV or radio. And the guy said radio. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. I've never mentioned radio to him, but whatever, you know, it was kind of an aside. And like a week later, the Muscular Dystrophy Association contacted me and they're like, yeah, this DJ from South Jersey like his parents were watching and they said that he should invite you down to his radio station. And I was like, what is even happening right now? (laughs) And the funny thing was, right, so I was living in in New Jersey at the time and their station actually didn't come all the way up to where I was. So I'd never heard of them before. So it was this very like, okay, I'm just walking into this thing. I don't know these people, but let's see what happens, you know? And he was their morning show host and they were, the the other host was on vacation. So he was like, do you want to come on, you know, and chat for a bit? And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. And now he had not actually seen me. It was his parents, you know, that saw me on TV. So he didn't know what I could do, but we immediately got into like this like really fun banter and then like he went to commercial and he looked at me and he was like oh my god he's like you're really good (laughs) I was like oh oh thanks you know yeah this is kind of you know I I talk for a living and I want to you know be doing that kind of thing so anyway spent an afternoon there and he was like yeah I just thought I was gonna give you like a tour he's like but we have the night position opening here would that interest you at all And I was like, holy cow, like, (laughs) last thing I ever expected. And of course, it wasn't like what I was intending to do. But I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I can't pass this up. This is an incredible opportunity. So that's what I wound up doing. And it was really fun learning everything there. Like I had done some audio work in college and even in high school, actually. But um it was interesting learning how they do things. And I actually found out that they they broadcast online. So theoretically, I could have been listening previously, but that meant some of my online friends could could hear me as well, which was fun. It was, yeah, it was about five and a half years, I think I was there. And then the last like year, I they asked me to be the producer of their morning show as well, which was a lot of fun. And if it wasn't for those early morning hours, I probably would have kept doing that. Um, But that was around the time that I started my blog. And then I started picking up all sorts of freelance work. And I was like, oh, wow, this can be a thing, too. So that's when I left the radio station. So did you actually like kind of live the internet dream? Like you you had a blog and you started picking up work from putting yourself out there and got paying work that lets you quit your other job? Is that is that the right order here? <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I had been geeky since birth, but I had never read comics until 2006, I want to say, maybe 2005. I was, I was dating a guy and he was like, you like all this stuff. Why aren't you reading comics? I'm like, I don't know. No one's ever like, you know, introduced me properly. So anyway, he started me on it. And then I was hooked, obviously. And so when I was thinking, I, I miss writing a bit. So let me let me start a blog. And oh, I'll do it about this, because this is fun and new and exciting for me. And it was fun, because back then I was I was on blogger. And there was, a, I don't remember exactly if there was a name for it. But there was a way where you could like go to other people's blogs that were similar. And so I would do that and comment on other people and get to know the other bloggers in that realm. And I was like, wow, there's not a lot of women here. This is really weird, you know. But it was fun, you know, making friends. And and then at one point, I think I went to a convention by myself, reported on it. And then I went, I'm going to send this to, um, I think I sent it to Newsarama and CBR at the time. 
and Newsarama didn't get back to me, <laughs> but CBR did. And uh, it was uh, Jonah Weiland, the um, creator and owner at the time. He was like, this is exactly the kind of reporting that we're looking for. Would you like to, you know, do some work for us? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so that's kind of where it started. And I did my first like convention coverage for him at New York Comic Con one year. And that went really well. And I actually did some hosting for them as well. And then, yeah, Newsarama eventually hired me as well, <laughs> which is very funny. But um, yeah, and it just started like, wow, this is a thing that people actually do freelance, you know, like I, I would have loved to have like a full time job doing it. But it was enough at the time where I felt, you know, obviously, I had the privilege of still living with my parents. So that helped. But um, yeah, it was it was a really cool thing to say I did. <laughs> yeah. After I'm trying to get the timeline in my head after the radio was where did you go after that so I was still at the radio when I started my blog and then it was about I don't know if it was like six months or a year that I was doing all that work and started doing stuff online and it was when I um started working for MTV News when I finally left the the station and because um, MTV News at that time, it was, it was pretty steady work. You know, it wasn't like full time, but it was like, you know, basically an everyday thing. So that's when I sort of made the leap and started freelancing for probably way too many sites. <laughs> there was, uh, you know, some it, that's the other thing that was really interesting in the early days is I never you can never be sure. And maybe still today, this is the case, honestly, but you never know who is actually paying these writers, right? Because like some people are just like, oh, we do it for the joy of doing it, you know, and, um, you know, at some point, you know, I did that too, for a time. And I I worked with a really, really great group of people at a now defunct site called the Girls Entertainment Network. And it was like, a really great professional atmosphere there. And it led to even more, you know, opportunities for me. But when I would reach out to some people and say, hey, would you like to, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, yeah, we don't pay anything. And I'm like, okay, well, I, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> but thank you, you know. Um, yeah. And it's it stinks because it, it's like that in a lot of industries, I think, where they, they expect you to work for nothing or, or peanuts, you know, to begin with or exposure. But, you know. You can do that for a little just to get yourself out there first, but, you know, you don't want to do it for too long. Yeah, that makes sense. At that point in your career, or even now today, like, is the idea of being an on-air personality something that kind of changed for you, or is it just, like, not the direction things went, and that's cool? And, I mean, I guess you said you were still occasionally doing some, like, you were still doing some of that uh, by covering events and stuff, right? Yeah. I would say that my thinking on actually going and being a news anchor because so in college I did sort of what they call the contract major and so I was able to like pick and choose the stuff that I thought was going to get me to being a news anchor so I also minored in political science and I interned at a a local news station and in my senior year and it was a really really great experience I loved the atmosphere there and the pace of everything but I would go out with reporters every once in a while and kind of shadow them. And there was a point where there was a story. And to me, right, this was not a story. And here's my, you know, uh, 21-year-old self going, okay, don't say anything. You know, like, <laughs> you don't want to step on anybody's toes. But basically, the story was just like a really horrifying one. And uh, it was an accident. Somebody in a family 
accidentally ran over their kid. And we had to go to their house and knock on their door to try to get a comment from them. And I'm like, uh-huh. why are we doing this? This is terrible for this family. There's no reason to be here doing this. And even the guy who was like, you know, doing the reporting, he was like, yeah, but I, we have to. And I was like, maybe this isn't for me. <laughs> you know, like, I, I guess at that point, I didn't understand that morals didn't always come into play in in uh, the news world. And that was something that was just too important to me to give up. So so as far as doing it like in a serious aspect, and that's not to say entertainment reporting isn't serious too, but it just, you know, I knew it wasn't for me. So along with the writing, if I had more time when I was at like my full-time writing, editing jobs, I would love to do more video. And I still love to do video. It's just um, you can see a lot of the work being done by like influencers now. And it's, I look at them and I know how much work is going into it. Like some people might not, but I go to myself, I'm, I'm too old and tired (laughs) to put that much work in and I just can't do it anymore. So like, you know, if an amazing opportunity came along, maybe I would, you know, try again, but it's just, it's a lot to be like on all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot because, you know, like I'm having a hard time letting go of Twitter because I like that text-based aspect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm on Blue Sky now and it's and it's good. And, a lot, and like I saw someone putting a joke up about like, oh, it's just Blue Sky is for, you know, people who just want Twitter and they don't want to try something new. They just want Twitter from 2007. And I was like, yeah. but yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. Because one of the things yeah. that I think was really nice about Twitter is that, I mean, I'm not saying that there wasn't ever people who are doing this and it was the kind of skill that people who are influencers have in terms of like figuring out when to post things and how to post things. But especially in the early days of Twitter, you had the ability by to like gain a following and have people listen to what you say just by kind of having an interesting personality. Like, yeah. you know, right, I mean, right. And like, that's still kind of true for some of the other media, but there's so much work that goes into it. Like I, it's so much more work to be interesting on TikTok or Instagram than it is yeah, <laughs> to yeah. be interesting on Twitter, you know? I can do that in my in my PJs without my makeup on, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, even on like Blue Sky now, I so social media overall, it's been a drain, I think, for all of us, you know, mentally. Um, and so I have certainly stepped back and I've been able to do that because I haven't been working at a website that I needed to like promote constantly, right? But getting on Blue Sky and being like, wow. It's really refreshing to not care how many followers I have, <laughs> you know, right. and like, but it also makes me think if, if I was, if I was trying to do that, if I was trying to get like the 30,000 I have on Twitter, what would I even do now? Because everything, like you said, is so different and being yourself is almost not enough, which really sucks. <laughs> Yeah, like, I think that might be part of the reason why I'm having a little bit of a hard time letting go of Twitter, because it's like a place where I feel like I have an audience, which is maybe a little conceited to say, but, you know, but is is mildly true for me, comparatively, because I, because I mean, like, I I don't have 30,000 followers, but I also have never really, this is the first kind of content I've ever tried to produce. I've never really had a blog. (laughs) I've never been producing kind of, you know, I've, I, that audience came from just like, being silly on the internet, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I have, a, you know, a good community of people there in a couple different aspects of my life, be it some of the more, like, nerdy and fandom places and nuclear Twitter and, like, it's not building 
and I like, and part of me is just like, well, that also took a really long time to build too, so maybe it will get there. But you're right, I don't think it's quite the same anymore. It was an interesting time to be online and, and meeting people and have to just let it go, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's grief. <laughs> yeah. And Lee's over there just like, I, like, if no one would ever talk to me, that would be fine. <laughs> <laughs> what if no one knew I existed? And yet I keep making podcasts. <laughs> and I just stay off social media. It's fine. <laughs> so at some point you transitioned to like more of a regular full-time position was that was the mary sue where that happened yeah yeah and that also was i have twitter to thank for that one actually i was at that point just kind of like desperately please i really want a full-time job with benefits can i please do this work for someone one someone you know and um <laughs> at the time I don't, I don't think I'd heard of the Mary Sue yet, but the woman who created it, Susanna Polo, she just like basically cold tweeted at me and said, what about a paid internship? And I was like, huh, that could be interesting, you know? So we messaged, you know, privately about it. And basically, it was just two people at the time running the Mary Sue. It was very early days. And they got the chance to hire somebody else. And the internship was more of like a trial period. And so it was be an intern for like three months. And then if everything's great, then we hire you full time. And that's what wound up happening. And I was just like, so overjoyed that that was where it happened for me, because they were such wonderful people. And um, the community there was really, really great, and like actually cared about things and wanted the media that we were consuming to be better, you know, and to strive to be better. And that was a really great place to like live, you know? <laughs> yeah, I can see that. And you went from, you started, you were the editor in chief by the time you left there, right? Yeah, yeah. I started, well, technically, you know, started as an intern, but then when I was full time, it was associate editor. Yeah. And then I, I got bumped to managing editor at one point. And then um, we had a whole uh, merger with another site in the network ecosystem and took on all their writers. And um, I was editor in chief. And it was um, quite a hectic time. <laughs> I will say, we had built ourselves up to such a level that, you know, big people in the business were actually paying attention to us, which was both cool and frightening. Like I found out after the fact that we were mentioned by like the CEO or something of uh, Sony when there was that big hack many years ago. And we were mentioned like in an email that she sent out. It was like, look, we're not we're not doing good enough here, you know? And I was like, whoa, that is that is <laughs> wild. <laughs> and they're actually reading us. And then I was at I was at San Diego Comic-Con, an event that was oddly enough, for Game of Thrones beer, right? But they invited some of the actors to help, you know, promote it. And I got a few minutes with Pedro Pascal, which was incredibly frightening for me because I was already <laughs> ridiculously attracted to him and <laughs> trying to keep my cool, you know, like, be professional, Jill, you know, like. And when I went to speak to him, I said, you know, I only had, I think, maybe like two minutes, right? They gave each person. And I said, I'm Jill Pantosi, I'm from the Mary Sue. And he goes, and gives me this really thoughtful, like, head tilt. And he goes, I know the Mary Sue. Oh, my God. Did you die? <laughs> oh, my God. How do I continue living? Like, 
It was truly like, I wish I could have like talked to him about that. Like, how did you come to the Murray Sue? What do you think of everything? You know, but again, I had two minutes. So I had to get my, you know, actual Game of Thrones questions in. But yeah, so it was it was really, really wild, but just like a tremendous amount of work. And I think, like I said before, about how sometimes you couldn't tell who paid and who didn't. We were all full time people, right? And then we had some freelancers who we paid. But there was a lot of people outside who thought we were not getting paid and just doing it for the fun of it. And I was like, no, this like media guy owns us, you know, <laughs> like we have a big boss. It's not just, you know, us. And I think that that was really a, a, like a, a wide awakening for some people like, oh, oh, these are, you know, they're professionals. They're not just fans, you know, but it did it did make things very difficult when we got, you know, bigger. And especially when we did the merger with Geeko system, which I never thought was a good idea. But of course, no one, you know, wanted to hear that at the time, or I should say not no one, but, um, you know, the person who was making that decision. The people who made the decisions. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It did not go well. It was like, oh, it's just going to happen one day. And I was like, we need to tell people. And they're like, no. (laughs) Like, okay. (laughs) And then, of course, everyone freaked out because we did like a redesign of the site the same day. And so it was just a whole bunch of change. And like, I knew our readership was very sensitive to our community. And so now they're flooding us with this other community who wasn't bad, but wasn't in the same like headspace as our community was. And it was just such a hard transition to make. And I just, I felt really bad for the Geeko system folks too, because they had such a unique thing going themselves, you know? And so to see that just kind of, and it's, you know, you see it more and more these days where something just gets either acquired or merged, and then the other thing just like disappears. And it's like, why did you do that? (laughs) You know, like something was good there and you just got rid of it for no good reason. I, that makes me think a lot about um, when I worked for a company that got acquired by like a big company, right? Yeah. And I found out while I, I think I found out it was happening while I was at PAX East. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. And uh, we were all kind of sitting around having some drinks at the end of the night. And I was like, kind of like, yeah, so I found this out. It's kind of a big deal. And they're like, yeah. Cause I had worked for like a smaller, uh, like a medium sized company who I just, they seemed very happy. I had no idea they were even thinking about doing that, you know? Right. And I was like, well, you know, they said they did all these things and it sounds very promising and it doesn't really seem like it's a big deal. But, you know, I also don't know a single person in my life who has a story that starts with, so my company got bought out and it ends in a nice way. <laughs> right. So I was like, so I'm yeah. a little apprehensive and, and I'll just say I had the right to be apprehensive about that experience. Yeah. But yeah, what what was unfortunate towards the end there is I, I realized, well, one, I knew for a long time that I was completely underpaid. We all were. And that wasn't going to be changing anytime soon. And I was 100% clear on that. And there also was no growth after that, right? Because they had all these other sites and they already had an editor that kind of was above, you know, all the site editors. So anyway, I, um you know, got to the point where I was like, why am I even doing this anymore? Like the people above me don't appreciate the work I put in. I'm not getting paid well for it. And I'm really ruining my physical and mental health just being here and doing all this work for little reward. And it was one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make to leave. And I I seriously, my readership sent me flowers on my last day. Like my boss didn't even give me flowers or say anything. 
my readership did. And that made me lose it. I just like cried. <laughs> so yeah, it was really hard to lose that as like my my little home, because um, it did mean a lot to me. And so that transition was like, that must have been really hard. I mean, like, just deciding like, this just isn't right for me, even though it had been so good and right for a long time. I can't imagine having to make that decision. Yeah, I mean, I definitely stayed a lot longer than I probably should have uh, because of that, you know, I really, and I think that's what a lot of like, a lot of these higher ups or, you know, the people with the money, they, they, they know that, right? They know that people are loving what they do and they take advantage of it. And at one point I just had to say like, you know, I just have to have more self-respect basically and, and just say, this is not for me. And it was frightening because I left without another job and then had a bunch of people like, oh my God, don't worry about it. You're going to be picked up in no time. You know, you're Jill Pantosi, you're blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay. And then I didn't get a job for like a year (laughs) and it was really, really rough. (laughs) What did you, what, what was the next step there? So I think at that point is when I started doing some freelance for IGN and The Hollywood Reporter. I probably have my timing wrong on some of this, but uh, the next like steady thing that came along wasn't a full-time job, but it was like full-time freelance, you know, and that was HitFix, which got merged into Uproxx and now no longer <laughs> exists. <laughs> but that was cool. They were a nice crew over there and... Uh, it felt like a, a good stepping stone for me. Um, and then when they did that that merge, I was just like, you've got to be kidding me, not again, you know? <laughs> and uh, I think I was there for maybe a year. And on New Year's, no, the day after New Year's Day, my boss called me while he was out walking his dog and fired me. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> Like, are you kidding me right now? And he's like, yeah, sorry. Uh, It's just like budget stuff, blah, blah, blah. And like they had already let go, I want to say like three or four of the other HitFix people by that time and just basically kept picking them off. And it was it was horrifying. But I was just like, I cannot like I understand I wasn't like a full time employee, but I was putting in 40 hours a week for you. And you're firing me while you're walking your dog. Like, how disrespectful is that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, probably good that, that that happened. Because, you know, if that's really what that, that person was like, I didn't want to work with them anyway. And then I, you know, went back to freelancing again. And um, eventually, so I had wanted to work at io9 for years. <laughs> like, that io9 started i think like a year or two before i started my blog and so there were always ones that i really like i read every day you know it was that kind of thing and i knew the folks over there and everyone was always like yeah we'll we'll, tr- we'll we got to get you in someday you know we'll we'll find the right time and when i was i think it was before hit fix there was a like a weekend editor position and the guy who was running the site at the time rob bricken amazing guy. I'd worked with him. He ran Topless Robot back in the day. I don't know if anyone remembers that. He was like, this is like really below you. But you know, if you want to, you know, talk about it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, because at that point, I was just like, well, I just want to get my foot in the door, you know. But the the other person that was above him, it just like what she was like, this is not 
for you. This is nothing. Like, don't do this. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so then after HitFix, like maybe six months, seven months, Rob contacted me and he was like, hey, guess what? <laughs> He's like, my managing editor is leaving. I would like for you to replace her. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? It's finally happening. He was like, it's finally happening. <laughs> so that was, that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So how long were you there? Uh, I was there for four years. And what was interesting about that experience is they were they were already a unit, right? So whereas in the Mary Sue, I basically came in almost at the beginning and helped everything kind of, you know, build itself and and have all these new people come in. And here I was walking into, oh my gosh, you know, there's this team and I'm the newbie and, you know, I have to get to a point where they trust me with their work. And it was a really interesting experience for me as like a manager just because, like early on, I never thought I was going to be a manager. I never thought of that. And then at the Mary Sue, I kind of just fell into that. And that's where, you know, it kept going because I actually felt I was pretty good at it. <laughs> and I guess other people did too. So it was fun, you know, getting to know that crew and learning the ins and outs and be at a, a larger media company, you know, than previously. That was that was something that was really interesting about that too. And, um, you know, really fancy offices and in Union Square in New York and, you know, all sorts of special events here and there. And it was just, and it was also a union position, which is really cool. We were unionized with the Writers Guild. And so that was that was also a new and exciting yeah. thing for me. Um, your story about Pedro Pascal before did make me think of an extremely important um, and, you know, high-level question I need to ask. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Who's the hottest person you've ever interviewed? Lee Pace. <laughs> I like how immediate that answer was. <laughs> I for that one like it was it was virtual thank god because <laughs> that man is like 8 feet tall I don't know he's huge and just like even through the screen like he was looking directly at this I'm sure it wasn't a computer it was a nice camera you know and I'm pretty sure he had a, a thing that he could see me but it looked like he was looking like directly into my eyes <laughs> and uh it was great because he Pedro Pascal gave really good answers too, which it was like really nice to hear. Because like sometimes you know it's it stinks. Celebrities are getting the same questions over and over, and they just have these stock answers. And you know sometimes sometimes they care, sometimes they don't, right? And for both those cases, you could tell that the person really cared about the project they were working on. Because like Lee Pace was like, I love sci-fi, like, <laughs> just like spitting out all this stuff that I didn't even expect, you know, from him. And I'm like, this is amazing, you know. But every time I, I see him, like, on uh, Foundation, on that's what, that's what the interview was for on Apple. It's just, it's astounding, like, just takes my breath away how gorgeous that man is. I was so glad I And his husband is gorgeous, too. It's disgusting. <laughs> To switch gears a little bit, I am trying to figure out how to ask this delicately, because what I don't want to do is be like, can you believe that this woman has a disability and she can live a life in the world? But like, <laughs> um, but <laughs> something I've always been like kind of astounded about by you and admired about you is that like you, you do use a scooter to get around. You have like limited mobility, right? That's, is that, is that an appropriate way to? Yeah. You have spent a good chunk of your adult life living in New York City. And that has always just like blown my mind how 
you seem to navigate the city so well. Like I can't, I, I, can, I feel like I can barely walk around sometimes and like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I, so I have the benefit of having lived in New Jersey for the other part of my life and having been that close, everybody goes into the city. It's just, you know, that's what you do. And so even like driving, like in the city, I have no problem and I'm good at being aggressive with that. And for other people, it's just like, their nightmare, you know. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny you say that because when I was younger, that I always wanted to live in, in New York, but I didn't think I was going to because so much is inaccessible here for wheelchair users. But it was really a matter of finding a place. And I lucked out that the place that I was in was like an older building that was remodeled. So doorways were big enough. There was a ramp, you know, the whole deal. But getting around in New York is still a challenge, I would say. I I used to go out a lot more, obviously, pre, pre-pandemic, you know, everybody did. But um, I could never take the subways here, you know, and that's a huge part of New York living. And I feel like I'm, I sort of miss out on that. But the subways are not consistently accessible. Like, there's only certain stops you have to find that are and then even when you find those sometimes the elevators are broken or the train you know car doesn't meet the platform and so you can't actually get into it so I learned that very early on I was like okay this is just not you know for me which which sucks so I'm one of those New Yorkers you know I look at everybody else I'm like I don't know why you have a car (laughs) I know what I do like everybody else what are you doing sitting in this traffic every day oh my god I mean, like, I kind of know the answer because as a society, we're just not, we're just not very great at being accessible. I mean, ADA requirements are, are really, really low bar and we still don't force everybody to meet them. But like, how does, I mean, in the year 2023, how do they get away with having an entire system of transportation that is just not accessible? Like they don't have it, they don't meet any of the most basic requirements. Yeah, well, I think you, you kind of hit the nail on the head when you're talking about, you know, there's just no one to enforce the Americans with Disability yeah. Act. I think only like now certain things are starting to happen. I think there's um, a lawsuit happening that like somebody was trying to, I want to say it was a hotel or something, but they were, they're, they're finally, they're suing. And I think it's going to the Supreme Court for, you know, hey, this is supposed to be a certain way and it's not. And somebody has to finally kind of put themselves out there and take that kind of stand. And it's it's really tough because- so far, there has been no real, it's just basically do, people doing it because they feel they have to, they're obligated to, basically. But people, for the most part, don't go like above and beyond that. Like there's been times where like, I'm at a hotel and the biggest thing at hotels is the bed height, which is not something that's covered under the ADA, surprisingly. So the toilet might be fine height-wise, but the bed is like three feet off the ground. And I don't know how anyone, like, let alone disabled people, like, able-bodied people, too. Like, who (laughs) wants to get into a bed that high? Like, you would need steps, you know? Like, it's just ridiculous. So it's little things like that. And then, of course, you fall into a lot of the places in New York are older. And if they were before the ADA, which was 1993, they don't have to retrofit unless they're doing something like twenty thousand dollars worth of work on the place anyway that was something i actually learned when i went to this this bar that we do we did some geek meetups at they have this 
incredible like downstairs area and an upstairs area, but they have this lift in like the middle of the staircase. And I remember when the guy was like setting it up for me, I was just like, this is great. I'm so glad you guys have this. And he's like, oh yeah, like the owner did a whole remodel at one point. And because, you know, we were doing this much over, uh, we had to. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so it's it's interesting. And obviously the subways are terrible in many other ways as well for everyone. And that's a matter of just, I think, the politics in New York. Because <laughs> I've been to other cities and it is much better. <laughs> yeah, I just, it really does kind of blow my mind that the whole subway system can be like that. I mean... Maybe as there is, are the, are some of the accessible stations ones that they've had to do big remodels on or? I think, I, I don't know when like they started putting elevators in, but I think for the most part that was for like people with baby carriages or luggage, you know, and it wasn't, it was like an afterthought. It was just like, oh, we have space for it at this station. Let's put it here, you know. Well, I guess um, you people with wheelchairs who leave the house sometimes can use it too. Yeah. <laughs> They're doing some refit on, I want to say, one of the elevated trains. And they were making some crazy excuses about why they it wasn't going to have an elevator. And it was just like, you're doing all this work anyway. Like, how can you possibly not put an elevator there? And it wasn't only that. Like, the stuff that they were trying to do to make accessible, they're like, yeah, all this isn't going to be done until, like, 2025. And that was, like, two years ago. And I was like... Wow. <laughs> like priorities, yeah, that's man. Wild. I I have a hard time imagining living in a city period, but New York seems <laughs> especially just difficult. Yeah. The one thing I will say is, you know, New York gets a big a bad rap for everybody being mean, you know, and I think everyone here feels like they have to have a certain like roughness about them to like just be here, but I have had some of the best random stranger experiences with stuff that's happened. Like I was, so my van that I had previously had like a lift in the back that was like a crane style and it would go down and I would hook it onto my motorized chair and it lifted it up. And I was parking one day and I was getting it out and I think it was by like a a sewer grate or something and uh, I tripped and I fell and it was literally like, my biggest nightmare ever for, you know, New York to be out alone and have this happen. And before I could even like process how I was going to get myself out of this, some man just put his hands underneath my arms and lifted me straight up (laughs) and walked away. (laughs) Like I barely had time to say thank you to him. And I was so shocked. I mean, you know, so I I was, you you know this, but I, I don't think everybody else is like, I was born in New York. I lived there until I was a teenager. And, you know, that's one of my... I don't know, unpopular opinions with a lot of people is that New Yorkers are not mean. They're actually some of the, like, in, in certain ways, they're some of the nicest people on earth. They have a very different etiquette, or I, I would even yeah. say we, I still consider myself in this because I have never fully adapted to other places, but <laughs> we have a very different yeah. etiquette about how we conduct ourselves and how we talk to other people <laughs> and what our expectations are of other people and how they behave in public spaces. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, like if you need help, like New Yorkers help you like, (laughs) yeah. And it's never fake. That's a hard thing for me about the South. The like everybody acts so friendly and sweet, but it's fake most of the time. Oh yeah. Oh, the the South is awful. (laughs) Yeah. It's so fake. I, as just as a person that's like traveled to different cities, I have found in general, 
the northern cities that I go to, I think the people feel nicer. They feel more helpful. And when I'm in the South, in my home where I'm used to, everyone does feel like mean and fake. And no one's like, I've never experienced like someone being like openly awful to me in public, but I would expect it more in the South than I would in the North based on my own experiences being in both places. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like if you look at, and there's been tons of examples of this, but the only thing that comes to mind right now is Ghostbusters. Like you see how like the city all like comes together to like sing and just like help people and like do things in in that little very small vignette of the city, I think is very accurate. Like sibling (laughs) mentality where it's like, like you're fine until you mess with one of us. And then like, (laughs) yeah, yeah. 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 We can make fun of ourselves and we can make fun of with with it or no, but you know, you start to. Yeah. (laughs) So also another addition to that is you've done a lot of traveling to conventions that can't be simple or straightforward a lot of the time. Do you have any thoughts about things you could share about how people might not realize they're like being inconsiderate to somebody in a wheelchair in a large crowded convention environment? Mm, Yeah. Well, I will say, so just so folks have a better idea of of what my situation is specifically, I was born with muscular dystrophy, a type called spinal muscular atrophy, and it's a degenerative disease, but I had like one of the milder cases, but it was still going to, you know, get worse as time goes on. So I was walking, you know, through most of my life. I only started using my scooter in high school, and that was just because it was a very large, spread out school. And so I could help myself a little more and previously was confident enough to go on a plane by myself to go to some of these conventions. And now I like can't even imagine doing that. One, because one, right now I'm not walking anymore because I had two falls where I broke my legs. And it's a whole thing. And I'm trying to get back there, you know, but it's it's tough work. And traveling when you can't help yourself like completely, that's that's a nightmare. And you can look up actually some folks, it's becoming a larger thing thanks to a lot of disability activists talking about it more, where the airlines will destroy people's wheelchairs. Because when you get onto a plane as a wheelchair user, you can't take your wheelchair onto the actual plane. There's just no room, right? So they make you transfer into what they call an aisle chair, which is slimmer. And then they strap you in like your Hannibal Lecter and they back you up to where your seat is. It's frightening. But then they just literally take your chair there from the gateway into the cargo hold. So there's no like special, you know, wrapping it up or doing this and this. And so some of these People have wheelchairs that are like customized and cost like $50,000 and they get completely demolished. And so, you know, even now I'm like, do I even want to like attempt? Like I'm thinking the next time I want to go somewhere, I'm like, can I get a train? You know, like I just can't imagine doing that now. And it's something that like you said with the, the subways in New York, the airlines, I would say, I can't remember which one it was. I want to say it was Delta. One of them was working with somebody to actually create like a seat on a plane that would like, if a person wanted to sit in it, they could, but if not, you could actually remove the seat, but it would still have kind of like a a shell where the wheelchair could back into and get locked in. And that needs to happen much quicker and everywhere, (laughs) Um, you know, 
And so, you know. Yeah, I mean, buses figured that out. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, airlines, obviously, they have their trying to make as much money as possible by shoving as many people in there as you can. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I will say, as someone who uses a wheelchair, going to a convention and going anywhere, really, on vacation or anything else, it just requires, like, so much planning. And that's that's the part that, like, I think other people don't think about is, like, I have to call hotels and I have to ask them about the height of the toilet and the height of the bed. And, you know, I have to set up the wheelchair accessible transportation when I get there because if it's a, a city I've never been to, I don't know what's what. You know, I would say the, the shows themselves, like, on the whole – I think have always been pretty good about accessibility. Like they've always had like chairs dedicated to like wheelchairs on the aisle so they could pull that out or have a companion seat or whatnot. Uh, They probably could do a lot better with folks who are hearing impaired (laughs) because I've never seen like unless you know someone's going to like need it. And I just think that should be the default, you know, because you never know. So anyway, but that that is to say that conventions on a whole are a nightmare because of how crowded they can get. And when you're at a convention, you are going through these aisles, you're in a zone, right? Because you're looking at stuff and you're seeing cosplayers and you're, you know, you're not looking down. No one ever looks down, you know? So here I am like two feet below where everybody else is. And then all of a sudden, oh my God, and somebody is like tripping over me. I'm like, well, why weren't you just looking ahead you know <laughs> like um so that's that's definitely a challenge um i'd say at least with the kind of wheelchair that i use it's a scooter so it has like a front on it and that at least helps like usher people out of the way <laughs> and not having to like hit my legs or something but it is oh it's such a nightmare sometimes like i'll try to go and do my like show floor run on like the last day of the con when i know it's going to be less busy yeah that makes sense I know you're saying, like, you, you wouldn't necessarily do some of the traveling you used to do when you were younger now, but I still, I don't know, I'm still just very impressed by, it. like, you have figured it out, and that's something that I think is kind of cool. But I also, just from going to conventions that we were both at, I, I feel like I around, I don't know when that would have been, like, the early, like, 2010, 2015 range, like, I learned a lot about thinking about, how, about what, what had to be thought because we thought ahead of time, you know, like with, with trying to find a place to go to dinner, trying to find a place to go have drinks. Like, yeah, I didn't, I don't think I was aware of just how few restaurants in a lot of cities are not like you just can't get in the door. Yeah. And the other thing is sometimes you can call and say, Hey, do you have a step? And they go, no. And like my friends have now learned to actually say, can you take the phone and walk outside? Did you just step down there? Go, Oh, yeah, it's like two inches and like that matters, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think it's it's good for more people to think about that because it's definitely a privilege to not have to think about it. And it's really eye opening when you start realizing how many places that a certain like a certain portion of our society just like isn't allowed to go into because yeah. they can't be bothered to do make have some kind of like level entryway that you can get a wheelchair into like that's once you start looking for it you're never going to be able to unsee it i'm so sorry i've I've now put this in your head but i'm not sorry at all (laughs) yeah you know honestly like i know some folks who um unfortunately got you know long covid and it has really messed with their lives and they've had to start using accessibility aids and it's 
you know, I've had a few folks like come to me like, hey, <laughs> can I ask you some questions, like logistical things? I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. Because that's going to become a much bigger thing, you know, like, a lot of people have been affected in that way. And I think society is going to have to adapt a lot quicker than it has previously, um, because the need is going to be bigger. Yeah. Not that it already isn't like, you know, 25% of the world has some sort of disability. Um, and you would think that would be enough for people to <laughs> take action sooner than later. But uh, yeah, it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Um, are there any other topics related to kind of creating more accessible spaces that you're interested in, in bringing up? I think I would also just like to point out that when people are organizing events, whether it's a huge convention or just like a book reading or, you know, just something local, accessibility has to be a part of everything. It can't be an afterthought. You have to have people involved or at least, you know, outsource that kind of thing and say, okay, what can we do to make this inclusive for everyone? Because I think, like you said, once you start seeing it, it's like, oh God, <laughs> have I been a jerk my entire life? You know, it's like, well, you might just not have thought about it. And I, I get that, you know, but making events, especially like it's very, it's been very unfortunate, some like LGBT conventions and, um, uh, just like local events that I wanted to go to where people were not masked. And I'm like, do you want queer disabled people to be in your community or not? Because we are vulnerable much more, you know, to that sort of thing. And it, it's, it sucks that folks in that community aren't thinking that way. So I think just really everyone trying to put that into practice, you know, is one of the, the most important things that, that they can do. I think, too, it's the kind of thing that once you start doing it, like if you are planning things, if that's like uh, a thing that you do in life, or even if you're the kind of person that goes to things, because I don't, I'm not, but there, <laughs> there must be, <laughs> you, you people exist that go to places, right? But the more you do it, the more you plan for accessibility, the more disabled people can come to your things. So then you see more of them and then you are thinking more about it because a lot of times that is the problem is that if you don't interact with anyone else that's different from you, you mm -hmm. don't know what you don't know about that life. So the more you see it, the more you understand like, oh, I should be thinking about this because I know these people in my life that have this problem and I can help. And, you know, it's, it's when we keep people out of spaces that we can't learn more about them because you're not interacting yeah. with them. Yeah. And honestly, like, and I, I said this before, I'm, I'm too old and tired to do this. But um, I give a lot of credit to a lot of the younger folks who are like disability influencers, because they are kind of filming their day to day life and showing people like, yeah, hey, yeah, like, I am just like you. But hey, this thing is in my way and can't allow me to do the thing that you do. And even just, I saw one the other day, it was really great because this happens to me a lot. In accessible Ubers or taxis or whatever, mostly the wheelchair, there's like a ramp in the back of the van and you roll in and then they tie you down with different, you know, locking mechanisms. But it is a horrible ride back there. And I saw this girl recording herself and how much she was getting bounced around and like yeah. just describing the experience about how, you know, you're kind of on a on a ramp. So you always feel like you're going to fall back and like 
you can't talk to the people. You can't talk to the driver, certainly, because he's so far away. And even the people like that might be with you in the backseat, it's really hard to hear them because it's just so noisy. <laughs> so I just, I really like that, like, a lot of young people are putting themselves out there in that way and, and showing just, like, what everyday life is like, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I've gotten a lot out of seeing that, you know, especially on, I think that that's made it into my TikTok algorithm. Yeah. <laughs> it's just mostly like, they're just like, I'm, I'm actually pretty happy with where that algorithm is at, but I feel like I've learned a lot. And I think it's, it's great that there's people who are willing to do that because it's, a, you know, it's a lot of your time and energy when you're already having to expend so much time and energy just to do tasks that shouldn't be so hard, Yeah, you know? And so that to, to think that somebody is living that, that part of their life is, is being made, you know, so many parts of their life are being made more challenging. And then they're also taking the time out of their day to like make TikTok videos to educate me, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. like that's, I'm, I'm always just like, so happy that those people are willing to do that because that's a, that's a lot. And it's a lot of labor that's being put out there. So. Yeah. Now, if we could just get like TikTok to put all of that into people's feeds regularly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because people aren't going to necessarily seek that out, but it would be great if that was just, hey, here, look, random tweet, random Instagram reel, random TikTok of, you know, this person's life. Like, just do it. Just do it, TikTok. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us, Jill. Where would you like to be found on the internet? <laughs> nowhere (laughs) (laughs) gosh i don't know i mean like i still have my twitter so twitter at jill pantosi and then you know anywhere else is kind of linked there i have a link tree that goes to all the other social accounts and everything else and of course my blog thenerdybird.com i haven't been doing as much there lately but that's always going to be you know my home so not that i think anyone's gonna like take my username at some place that i haven't gotten to yet but you know I'll always put my stuff uh, there that's official. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We really enjoyed having you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It was nice to meet you. You've been listening to You Can Do That with Lee and Lisa. We're just going to keep interviewing people until we get the person who smells things for NASA to come on our show. If you like our show, you can help us out by leaving a review on all your favorite podcasting platforms. You can join us next time where we interview Scarlett Sims about trivia, community theater, and being on Jeopardy. Also, you can find us on Instagram at you can do that pod at Blue Sky. You know, Blue Sky's weird. I think it adds like it looks like an email address, but just search at YCDT pod on Blue Sky. You'll find us. You can find a link for our webpage on in the show notes. And if you have any great ideas for a guest, you can send us an email at ycdtpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. I don't like how I say it. You can do that. 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 I'm going to do it that way. Please put that in the outtakes at some point. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We're just going to keep investigating. Nope, not investigating. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God.
We're just going to keep investigating how we can find the phone number of the person who smells things for gas. You know, I had a panic the other day and I was like, what if they don't have that anymore? Like, what if I, what if that's not even a thing anymore? Because it was like a thing in 2016 and it's not, a, but I looked it up and I do still think it's a thing. So we're good. Well, and <laughs> if they did it in the past, I would still talk to them about it, right? That's true. That's true. But I do think it's like a, a pretty old guy. So I don't know. But anyway. Oh, just, we're just going to take that one from the top. 